This episode's transcript is a 89,742-byte PDF document. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number two of the Beyond podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for all barbers who shave all those and those only who do not shave themselves. Hi folks, welcome back. My name is Vadim and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses meta concepts. For starters, I want to talk a little bit about doing research. For example, for this podcast, I have to look up material in books and online. So I wanted to ask you all, how do you do your research? For example, when you're studying a particular topic, do you do the disciplined thing where you complete your study of the topic before you move on to other things, or do you just jump from concept to concept? Like, how deep does your rabbit hole go? For example, let's say you take your kids to the zoo and they see a red panda there. And of course, they'll have lots of questions about red pandas. I'll take you home and lock you in a nice little cage and never, never, ever let you out except to pet you and love you and hug you and squeeze you all up. Won't that be fun? So you start doing some research about these raccoon wannabes and you find out that they live in the Himalayas. And of course, if you look up the Himalayas, you're going to learn about the kingdom of Bhutan and then you'll start learning about the agriculture over there and that will lead you to yaks, which will naturally make you want a glass of milk. Just like that mouse you gave a cookie to that one time. So, of course, one option for research is to be disciplined and stick to one topic at a time. But beyond that, I see two possibilities. So the first possibility is, as you're doing your research, you could keep track of new concepts that come up and then follow up on them later. Like, let's say you have a notepad sitting next to you, and initially you just write red pandas on top. And then as you research red pandas, some new keywords come up like the Himalayas or coniferous forests, so you just add them to the bottom of your list. And then as you research red pandas, maybe you'll end up with like a dozen extra topics. And then when you're done with pandas, you cross it off, and then you move on to the next item on the list, which is the Himalayas. And then as you research that topic, you add more key keywords to your list and so on. So your list just keeps growing at the bottom. But, and this is important, you have to complete your research on the current topic before you move on to, let's say, coniferous forests, and so on and so on. So you take the item off the top of the list, and then you expand the list at the bottom with new topics. So what do you think about this way of doing research? Would you say it's a good way to develop breadth on a given subject? Of course, there is another way you could do it. This is the method that I was alluding to earlier, where you just jump from topic to topic as soon as you find some new concept. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Now, this one might be more easily done with post-its or note cards. So you would start with one card that just says red pandas on it. And uh, as you do your research, you get to the Himalayas. So you stop reading all about pandas and you take a new card and you write Himalayas on it and you put it on top of your stack. And then as soon as you get to the kingdom of Bhutan, you get a new card, you write Bhutan on it and you start looking into that. 
And you keep doing it in this fashion until you get to some dead-end topic where either there's nothing new or there's nothing exciting for you. So you complete researching that topic and then you take the card off the top of the stack. Now you're back at the previous topic, so you resume where you left off. Did you find something new? Put it on top of the stack. Obviously this approach only works if you remember where you left off every time you jump to a new topic. So do you like this way of doing research? Would you say it's a good way to develop depth on a given subject? And of course, both of these approaches that I just described only work if the topics either don't repeat or more realistically, you have to check whether you've already explored or committed to exploring a particular topic before you add it to your list or your stack. Now, personally, I think the second approach is a little bit harder on the brain. You need a pretty good memory to jump from topic to topic and remember where you left off. So it might be hard to retain something useful. But it is a fun way to explore ideas, though. Personally, I've gone down many deep rabbit holes on Wikipedia this way. And you don't actually need a stack of cards, right? Uh, if you click a link in your browser, that's equivalent to putting a new card on the stack. And hitting the back button is like taking the card off top. And of course, if your browser remembers where you left off on the previous page, that's how you ensure that you're making forward progress. However, it's still on you to make sure you're not going in circles. But today for this podcast, just for fun, let's try this second approach where we just jump from topic to topic. I promise it won't be too hard to follow along, so let's give it a try. So in the part of the world where I live, uh, it's finally winter. Now, it doesn't really get so cold that we have to like clear snow off the cars, but it is chillier and the days are getting shorter and darker. And at times like this, I think about taking a vacation and I usually wanna go someplace warm and sunny. But I know different people have different ideas for a nice vacation spot. Uh, for example, for some people it might be Hawaii or the Maldives. For other people, it might be Banff. Blended. Welcome to Canada. Oh! But do you ever wish you could visit the Garden of Eden? So let's put a card on top of our stack that says Garden of Eden. Now, this podcast is not about religion or spirituality. So the Garden of Eden that I'm talking about is of the mathematical computer science variety. And in the mathematical computer science field of cellular automation, the Garden of Eden is both a place or really a state, in which everything started. It is also a place to which we can never return. So the concept does seem to have some similarity to its biblical cousin, which is probably why this name was chosen. So are you ready to push a new card on top of the stack of ideas? What is cellular automation? Well, there are some very formal mathematical definitions, but I, I don't want to put more cards on our stack just yet. So instead, let's describe it with a practical example. Do you remember using graph paper in school? It's the same size as regular paper, except it has these vertical and horizontal lines on it that form a grid. And this grid of squares is great for doodling or sketching. Uh, I suppose it's also good for doing math homework. So let's take a piece of graph paper like this and let's start drawing on it. We can draw any shapes or patterns we want. The only rule is for each square, we have to treat it like a pixel. So each square has to be either filled in or empty. It has to be on or off, dead or alive. 
So let's draw some nice patterns on our piece of paper. And again, it could be anything we want. It could be a flower, it could be a line or a rectangle, it could be a smiley face. We just have to make sure that each square is fully filled in. So please stay inside the lines, okay? And when we're done, we're going to get another blank piece of graph paper. And at this point, we're going to stop being creative. So we were really creative when we created our original piece of graph paper, that's our starting state. But from now on, we're going to act like a machine and we're going to proceed completely mechanically based on some rules. Well, what are those rules? That's up to us to determine. So the only thing in cellular automation that we have to obey is that the fate of every square, every little cell, depends only on its previous state and the state of its neighbors. Okay, so keep in mind, we're dealing with a two-dimensional grid. So every little cell has neighbors to the left and to the right, on top and on the bottom, and also the diagonals. So the rules of cellular automation say that we could only consider the state of those neighbors plus the cell itself to determine what the cell will look like in the next iteration. So let's take our blank sheet of graph paper and then for every cell on it, we look back at our original sheet and we look at the corresponding cell there and we look at its neighbors and then we make a determination about what we do next. So no matter how complex or beautiful our original pattern was, we only care about what happens in the neighborhood of each cell. So picture this two-dimensional grid of cells. Uh, it might be useful to add some coordinates to it, so let's do something like the game of Battleship. Now, Battleship is a strategy game that dates back to... You know what? No, we don't need to pop another card on the stack just yet. Imagine labeling your columns on the grid as A, B, C, D, and so on. And then we label the rows as 0, 1, 2, and so on from top to bottom. So if you are a cell that lives at coordinates C3 or Charlie 3, then your neighbors are the cells to the left and right of you, which is Bravo 3 and Delta 3. And then you also have the neighbors on top and bottom. That's Charlie 2, Charlie 4, and so on, including the diagonals. So you have eight neighbors in total. So in the field of cellular automation, we can make up any rules we want, but the rules have to be limited to what's happening in your immediate neighborhood. So let's run through a few examples of possible rules, and let's start with something really trivial. Okay, so consider this rule. If a cell is alive, it dies in the next iteration. Otherwise, everything stays dead. That sounds pretty nihilistic, right? So let's picture what this would look like. No, Johnny, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. We start with some pattern, and no matter how complicated that pattern is, on the next piece of graph paper, on the next step, everything just dies. Everything fades away and stays dead forever. Pretty bleak, right? How about the following rule? If a cell is dead, it becomes alive in the next step, and if it's alive, it dies. So what would that look like? Well, imagine your original starting pattern. In the very next step, it would be like a photo negative of itself. Everything just flips from being dead to alive and vice versa. And then it flips back and forth, back and forth like a strobe light. Isn't this that cartoon that causes seizures? The pattern doesn't change over time. It just flips back and forth like that. The overall pattern stays the same. So those are a couple of very simple rules, but our rules could be more complicated than that. For example, we can make a rule that does depend on the state of our neighbors. For example, 
if the neighbor to your left is alive, then you come alive in the next step. And you can try to picture what that would look like over time. Or we can make a rule that says, if your diagonal neighbors are alive, you come to life, otherwise you die. Those are also valid rules. Now you might be wondering, okay, well, how many possible rules are there? Like imagine if we made a little rule book for every possible set of rules, how many rule books could we produce? Well, let's see. So every cell is either on or off, and it also has eight neighbors. So in total, we have nine cells to consider. If we have nine cells in one of two possible states, that's two to the ninth or 512 possible combinations. So in order to be complete, a rule book would have to tell us the outcome for each one of these 512 combinations. Now we can abbreviate a bit and say things like, if the neighbor to your left is alive, you will be alive in the next step. And in all other cases, so that covers the 511 other possibilities, and in all other cases, you die. Okay, so that would be an acceptable rule book that just kind of compresses a bunch of sub-rules into one, let's say, English sentence. That's okay. But how many distinct rule books are possible? Well, since we have to specify the outcome for 512 different configurations, and each outcome is either dead or alive, that gives us 2 to the power of 512 different rule sets. And that's a pretty huge number. Uh, if you wrote it in decimal, that would be something like 10 followed by 154 zeros, okay? So it's a huge number, and you'll probably notice that some of these rules are just going to be mirror opposites of each other. Like if you have a rule that talks about the neighbor to your left, that's not really that different if you applied the same rule to the neighbor on your right. It just everything gets, gets kind of flipped in the mirror. So a lot of these rules will lead to very similar outcomes but it's still a very, very large number of rules. So if you wanted to experiment with all of them, it might take a very, very long time. It could take an hour, or it could take a hundred million years. But what if we made things a bit simpler? What if instead of considering the position of our neighbors, we just limited ourselves to the types of rules that only count the neighbors as being dead or alive, but don't actually care which neighbors they are? So here's an example of a rule. If three of your neighbors are alive, you become alive in the next step. If more than five of your neighbors are alive, you die. Okay? So these are the types of rules that only are concerned with the count of living neighbors, but they don't care whether those neighbors are on the left or on the top or on the diagonals. Okay? We're completely ignoring that positional information. So how many such rules can we come up with? Well, we have two possible starting states where the current cell is dead or alive, and then we have to consider all the possible counts of living neighbors. So we have eight neighbors around us, and we can have zero living neighbors, one living neighbors, and so on, all the way up to eight. So that gives us nine rules for what to do when the current cell is alive, and another nine rules for what to do if the current cell is dead. Okay? So that's a table with 18 rows that we have to fill out. And in each row, we have to write down the outcome, which is dead or alive. So that gives us two to the power of 18th possible rules. And that comes out to 262,144. 
So it's still a large number, but it's way smaller than 2 to the power of 512. It's a much more reasonable set of rules that we can explore. And again, if you were a company that made board games and you had to publish a new rule book every month with a new set of rules, well, you'd be in business for quite a while. Except, are these rules interesting? I mean, certainly not all of them. For example, the two rules I described earlier where everything just dies or everything just strobes on and off, uh, these rules do fit under the category of the types of rules that don't care about the position of the neighbor, but they don't make for very interesting outcomes. So the question is, are there rules that are more interesting? And one thing to keep in mind is that once we have our initial state and we agree on the rules, from that point on, our world evolves in a completely deterministic way, right? There's nothing creative. We look at each cell, we look at its neighbors, we count them up, and then the rule book tells us whether the cell will be dead or alive in the next step. So you could imagine building a very simple machine, a kind of mindless automaton, to implement the rules for us. What is my purpose? You pass butter. So are all the rules equally boring? Are they just all variations on the same theme? Do they all lead to predictable outcomes, just like the strobing pattern or the nihilistic everything dies scenario? Well, let me propose a particular rule to you, and you tell me what you think. Now, I'm going to abbreviate a bit, but it should be fairly easy to fill out our table of 18 rows based on these rules, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. If a cell is dead, and it has three living neighbors it will become alive. If a cell is alive and it has two living neighbors, it stays alive. If a cell is alive and it has three living neighbors, it stays alive. In all other cases, all living cells die and all dead cells stay dead. So that's it. Those are the predetermined outcomes. So superficially, they look no different than any of the other 262,144 possibilities. But what if I told you that this particular rule transcends the apparent simplicity and monotony of our system? Because you see, these rules are for a cellular automation known as Conway's Game of Life. So let's put a new card on top of our stack. What is Conway's Game of Life? Well, this is a particular instance of cellular automation and it was invented by a mathematician named John Conway in the 1970s. Now, the name has the word game in it, but it's not really a game in any traditional sense. Welcome to Lee Carvello's Putting Challenge. But it is exactly what we've been describing earlier. You start with graph paper, where you doodle some pattern, and then the rules of the game of life tell you exactly what to do for the next piece of graph paper, and so on. And the rules require only that you check if the current cell is dead or alive, and then you count up how many of its neighbors are alive. And that tells you what to do next. So these rules for Conway's Game of Life, they can be stated pretty concisely in three or four sentences. But if we go back to our table representation, where we have a table with 18 rows, nine rows for what to do in case the current cell is dead, and nine for what to do if the current cell is alive. If we wanted to fill those out, it would be pretty straightforward. Like for example, if the cell is dead, 
we have rows 0, 1, and 2, which represent your next action if the cell has 0, 1, or 2 living neighbors. So that's easy to fill out. So for row 0, we say dead. For row 1, we say dead. For row 2, we also say dead. Now, row number three represents the action for when the cell has three living neighbors. So in that case, we say that it will become alive. And then for all higher numbered rows, we say that the cell stays dead. Similarly, if the cell is currently alive, we will say that it should also be alive if it has two or three living neighbors. And all the other rows I filled in with the word dead, meaning that any other number of living neighbors causes a living cell to die. Boring. So what is so special about these rules versus most of the other possible 200,000 or so variations? Well, it turns out that the game of life is Turing complete and can simulate any other Turing machine. Okay, well, this topic deserves at least a few episodes and probably a semester or two of study and discussion but I'm actually quite eager to start popping cards off our stack rather than adding more cards to the stack. But let's just spend a few minutes here. So a Turing machine is a mathematical abstraction. It's kind of an idealized computer with an unlimited memory, which is usually described as a tape of infinite length. And this tape can have symbols on it from some predetermined finite alphabet. But the machine itself, like picture it as this small mechanical contraption that has a small amount of memory that remembers what state it's currently in. And then what it can do is it can read the symbol on the tape that's directly beneath the machine. And then based on some small fixed set of rules, it can decide what new symbol to write in its place. And then once it's done doing that, it can move the tape one step to the left or one step to the right. And the crazy thing about this arrangement, and this might seem completely counterintuitive, but a suitably programmed Turing machine could be as powerful as any modern computer. Like for example, think about some high-end PC that you might have at home or in the office. It can send email, it can browse the web, it can render high-end graphics in a video game. All of those things are different forms of calculation. And so a Turing machine, given enough tape and given enough time, could perform any calculation that any other computer can do. Now, of course, this wouldn't be practical and you would need a lot of tape, but the point is that a Turing machine is just as good as your computer. The Pentium processor has the power to make software look, sound, and feel more real. Now let's go back to Conway's game of life. So as I mentioned before, this game is Turing complete. That means that if you had a big enough piece of graph paper and you filled in the squares just the right way, you could perform any calculation that could be performed on any real world computer. Okay, I think this bears repeating. As impractical as it would be, you could write any program you wanted in Conway's game of life. Now, of course, for any non-trivial calculation, the grid would have to be like humongous, okay? Far beyond what you would ever want to do with a pen and paper. But the point is, it could be done. And then once you set up the grid by filling in a bunch of squares, you could apply the rules of the game of life mindlessly and the machine would just run. And just think back to how simple the rules are. You look at a cell, you count the neighbors, and then you look up in a table what to do next. That's it. Think about how simple a machine you could build to implement these rules. And yet, this machine would have tremendous power. 
Now, this is a meta podcast, so let's take this thought to its natural conclusion. Since Conway's Game of Life can perform any computation, you could create a program where you run Conway's Game of Life on Conway's Game of Life. Or you could take it to the next level. You could run a simulation on Conway's Game of Life that simulates a physical computer with all of its logic gates. And then on that computer, you could program Conway's Game of Life. And then you could layer these as many levels deep as you want. You're inside a simulation of a simulation inside another giant simulation. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Mind blown. All right, let's go back to cellular automation. Now, the examples we've discussed so far have been around two-dimensional cellular automations, like a 2D grid of Conway's Game of Life. But could it be even simpler? Well, the answer turns out to be yes. It turns out that you can have a one-dimensional cellular automation where it's literally just a single line of squares that are either dead or alive. And the rules get even simpler. You have a cell and you have its two neighbors, one to the left, one to the right. And your left neighbor could be dead or alive, you are dead or alive, and the same for the neighbor to the right. This makes for two times two times two or eight possible states. That means that your rule book only needs eight possible entries, one for each situation. And the outcome, just as before, is whether or not the current cell is dead or alive in the next step. So for the one-dimensional case of cellular automation, we could publish 256 possible rule books because we have eight states, and for each one of these eight states, we have two choices. So that's two to the eighth or 256. And of course, again, due to symmetries, a lot of these rules are going to be very similar to each other. But there exists one rule that is very special, and that rule is called Rule 110. So Rule 110 is one of these possible variations for 1D cellular automations. And just like Conway's Game of Life in two dimensions, Rule 110 in one dimension is also Turing complete, despite being so simple and one-dimensional. And again, the implication is that you could have a very long line of squares, and if you fill them in appropriately, you could perform any calculation that could be performed on any computer. And again, it would be impractical and would take forever, but the point is the program would complete and give you an answer. Okay, let's pop back to cellular automation and then pop back again to the Garden of Eden. So what is the Garden of Eden in this context? Well, it is a state from which everything begins and to which we cannot return. Do you remember that nihilistic rule I had proposed where every cell dies regardless of anything else? Man, they were nihilists, man. They kept saying they believed in nothing. Well, for that particular instance of cellular automation, any non-empty initial configuration of cells is a Garden of Eden configuration. Because as soon as we take a single step, everything fades away. And the rules do not allow us to ever return to any configuration that has living cells. What about the blinky strobe rule that we discussed, where every cell alternates between being dead and alive? Well, that cellular automation does not have a Garden of Eden state, because you could produce any pattern you want by just starting with a negative of that pattern, and in the very next step all the cells will flip and you'll get the pattern you wanted. And it turns out that Conway's Game of Life and we're not pushing on the stack because we've already gone down that rabbit hole. So it turns out that this game does have a Garden of Eden configuration, and in fact, many of them. 
So there are states that can only be starting states in the world, but the game can never produce such patterns, no matter where we start and no matter how long we go. Fascinating stuff, right? All right, let's pop back down to my vacation plans. Thank you, by the way, for going up and down the stack with me so far. So one thing I like to do on vacation is read. And occasionally it's some kind of a spy thriller, but usually what I like to read is science fiction. And within that genre, I really enjoy the subgenre of hard science fiction. So hard science fiction is the type of story that relies, or at least tries to take into account, actual science, and that it extrapolates from that, so it avoids concepts that are known to be impossible, like faster than light travel. And for that type of story, I really like the works of Greg Egan. Now, Egan is an Australian sci-fi author, and many of his works deal with concepts from advanced mathematics to quantum physics. And the novel I would like to discuss today is called Permutation City. So this novel was published in 1994, and it deals with topics like simulated realities, uploaded minds, the computability of consciousness, and something called dust theory, which I'm not going to be popping on the stack. Instead, I'd like to focus on the elements of the plot that are relevant to this episode without giving away too much in terms of spoilers. Okay, so in the near future, humanity has a lot of computing power, which is treated as a commodity, and it could be purchased by countries or individuals for uses like weather simulation, immersive virtual realities, and mind uploads. So people have figured out a way to scan the human brain at such a high detail that the structure could be replicated inside a computer simulation, which means that your mind can be scanned and then instantiated as a copy inside of a virtual reality with your full personality and all your memories. It's what made me, me! One of the main characters is a man named Paul Durham, and he's obsessed with experimenting on his own uploaded consciousness. He is somewhat mentally unstable, and he questions his own reality, whether he himself might be an uploaded copy. Now, another use of the world's massive computing power is a simulation called the Autoverse, which is a cellular automation similar in principle to Conway's Game of Life. The Autoverse is a three-dimensional automation that is sophisticated enough to simulate basic chemistry, this allows for complex structures to arise within the autoverse, including some primitive life forms. So our main character, Paul Durham, devises a plan to build a simulation within the autoverse that begins with a Garden of Eden configuration that would then expand forever. And he plans to upload mind copies of himself and a few other individuals so that in, within that simulation, they could exist forever on top of an expanding autoverse-based substrate. Oh, does that confuse you? Now, this is all hard to explain without getting into dust theory and some of the other premises in the novel. So please, just go ahead and read the book. I'll wait. Did you finish reading it? Good. The interesting idea here, among the many, many interesting ideas in the story, is that Paul Durham wants to run a game of life-like cellular automation on top of real computers, and within this game of life-like automation, he wants to write a simulated machine that can itself simulate a reality for the uploaded mind copies. Whew, that just rolls off your tongue, huh? 
And the reason he wants to start with a Garden of Eden configuration is so that later, the inhabitants of the simulated reality could mathematically prove that they are in a simulation by rewinding the state of the underlying cellular machinery back to the starting state, which would then be the Garden of Eden. So this is all very neat and very mind-bending, and I highly recommend the novel if you're into these sorts of topics. I also really enjoyed Egon's novel, Shield's Ladder, which deals with some highly speculative concepts within quantum physics. And one last thing to mention about Permutation City, um, a few years after the novel was published, Egan wrote an FAQ to address some of the common questions about the novel. And in the FAQ, he had a correction to the Garden of Eden idea in the novel. So it has been shown mathematically that Garden of Eden configurations are possible if, and only if, some states have more than one possible history. In other words, for some cellular automations, it is not possible to go from the current state back to a unique previous state, because several possible previous states could have led to the current state. To take the trivial example from earlier, the everything dies automation, after one step of that automation, all cells become dead, so it is impossible to trace back to a previous state. That's why any state could be a Garden of Eden state for that automation. So the problem with the idea in the novel is that if the main character's mind copy ended up in that kind of simulation, it would be impossible for it to trace the cellular automation process back to an initial Garden of Eden state. Whew. So if you find thinking about these kinds of ideas appealing, then you will enjoy the book. All right, well, thank you again for sticking with me so far. Now, at the end of the previous episode, I said that we would discuss meta jokes and meta humor on this episode. But when I started doing research on this, I realized that it would be far better to have a whole episode dedicated to meta expression in television, movies, comedy, etc., one amusing thing I did find was that if you go to the Wikipedia article on self-referential humor, there is a citation that links to the Wikipedia article on self-referential humor. Go Wikipedia. So, thank you again. I would love to hear what you think about this episode. Please email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. Again, that's thebeyondpod at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to your feedback and ideas for future discussion topics. Meanwhile, have a great week and be nice to your living neighbors. They may determine your future fate. Goodbye. <laughs>